kicking off episode 404 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Frankenstein's Mug. It is from the band The Greasy Gills off their album that came out last September. It was called Bodega Boys and you can find them at thegreasygills.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Check out the album. It's only five bucks. Of course, do that after you're done listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I've got a good one here. I've got a movie that we're talking about this week that I had not seen prior to, well, watching for the show. We're going to be talking about the movie Two on a Guillotine with friend of the show, Tim Durbin. Tim's been on the show in the past, and, uh, you know, this is something that he picked. He likes this one, and I think by the time you're done listening to this episode, you're going to like this one, too. Tim's the man. Thank you for doing this, Tim, and suggesting a movie that I've never seen. I think the listeners are going to dig it. Of course, no episode of Monster Kid Radio would be complete if we're talking about a classic monster movie. We want to know how that classic monster movie was represented in the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland, and we're going to do that. We're going to hear all about it from Ken. And, of course, we've got a Weird Wednesday report from Jeff. He's going to call in and tell us about a movie that he saw at the Joy Cinema not too long ago for Weird Wednesday. That's all coming up. You know what? Why don't we get to it right about now? Edgar Allan Poe's Tomb of Lygia. Poe considered it his masterpiece. She will not die because she willed not to die. Vincent Price, magnificent, macabre, defying the deathless, jealous spirit of Lygia. A nightmare of terror. Pitting their lust for life against the unholy powers of the undead. The undead attack the living. A wondrous world of maddening horror, starring Vincent Price in Edgar Allan Poe's Tomb of Lygia in color. If somebody asked you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team, or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast X meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as Movie X meets Movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla meets Old Yeller, and Robocop meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. Yes, Lon Chaney was all of these. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Miracle Man, the Phantom of the Opera. The world, fascinated and thrilled, called him the Man of a Thousand Faces. 
But what was the secret Lon Chaney hid behind his thousand faces? What was the mystery in his life? Now, for the first time, the true story, torn from his heart, comes to the screen. Starring James Cagney, magnificent as the fabulous Lon Chaney, master of the grotesque, the weird, the strange, and Academy Award-winning Dorothy Malone and lovely Jane Greer as the two women who made his life more astounding, more touching than any of his unforgettable roles. I'll come to see you every week. Every week. I promise you. You had me fired. Collection agency. I've come to collect my wife. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Belier calling in with a weird Wednesday report from the Joy Cinema. For the second time, I watched A Mea Notte Lavere Sua Alma, the 1964 Brazilian movie At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul. I'm going to apologize right up front for my terrible pronunciation of Portuguese names. The Joy doesn't often play movies with subtitles, preferring dubbed foreign films, but this one's an exception. This was the first of what Americans call the Coffin Joe movies, a translation of the name of the main character. Zay do Coaxo. Zay, I'm just going to call him Joe, is the town gravedigger, a position that seems to be held in high regard in their small Brazilian city. He's also a sadist, a bully, and eventually a murderer. He becomes obsessed with having an heir, something that his live-in lover, Lenita, hasn't been able to provide him. When Joe's best friend, Antonio, introduces his fiancée, Terezinha, Joe decides that she'll be the one for him. He murders Lenita and Antonio, staging both deaths to look like accidents. Terezina suspects the truth, though, and hates him. After he rapes her, she kills herself, something that surprised me given that she was Catholic and that's a mortal sin. The climax of the movie has Joe either being terrorized by the wrath of God or hallucinating in madness. Either way, he appears dead at the end, but does return in sequels. Joe is an almost entirely despicable character. While I share his basic opinion on religion, I still have a moral center that keeps me from doing all the terrible, terrible things that he does throughout the movie. He revels in his certainty that there's no God and mocks everybody else in the very religious town for their beliefs. He has about as much tact as an angry wasp. His one redeeming moment is when he stops a father from beating his son although even that is from Joe's belief that a male heir is a near sacred thing. It's odd watching a movie where the main character is so utterly evil. Like the great Spanish filmmaker Paul Nashi, Brazil's Jose Mojica Marin's name is all over his creation. He wrote, directed, and starred after the original actor for the role quit. There are substantiated reports that one scene was filmed under duress with Marin's holding a gun on the cameraman to force the scene to be filmed. Marin later claimed that the gun was a prop. Given the budget, I personally doubt that they could have afforded it. 
Despite its small budget, this movie does look amazing. The sets, and most of it was sets, not locations, look great. The cinematography by Giorgio Attili is nothing short of beautiful. While not a gory film, At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul is still a bit stomach churning. I do recommend this movie a lot, but while it may be a good movie, it isn't a pleasant movie. I won't be going to the next Weird Wednesday because of other plans, but I'll call again in a couple of weeks with another report. In the meantime, be good and stay weird. In a whirlpool of shrieking fear. From the most fiendish idea ever conceived by the human brain. The brainiac. And it has a friend. She was beautiful, desirable, and not altogether human. The curse of the crying women. Together they will trap you in a world of horror. But if you live through it, <laughs> you will never forget. The Brainiac and the Curse of the Crying Women. I feel my search is nearing an end. At last, the collectible toy oasis. Hey, Henry! Hey, kid! What's it gonna be? Indy or Han? Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street. Vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. This is Joan Crawford. I urge you to see my new motion picture straitjacket from the beginning. <laughs> Don't reveal the surprise shock ending. Don't reveal the surprise shock ending. Don't reveal the surprise shock ending. If you like the music you heard at the beginning of the show, the music of the Greasy Gills, and you happen to live in California, they've got three shows coming up. On February 9th, you can catch them at the Old Western Saloon in Point Reyes Station, California. On February 10th, they're going to be at the Pacelli Event Center in Daly City, California. And then in April, they're going to be at Bottom of the Hill in San Francisco, California. I found this information on their Bandcamp page. Again, it's thegreasygills.bandcamp.com. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie, Two on a Guillotine, was featured in Famous Monsters number 32 from March of 1965. This preview article was six pages long and came with eight photos. The article is made up almost entirely of a detailed synopsis, but it does not spoil the ending. It ends with these comments about the production. Two on a Guillotine is based on an original suspense story by Henry Slesser, the same author who wrote the novel based on Ray Harryhausen's 20 Million Miles to Earth, and whose magazine story Bottle Baby was purchased for the film plot of a picture to have been known as The Girl from 2 Million A.D., 
but was finally produced and released as Terror from the Year 5000. Watch for this Warner Brothers presentation. It's in the tradition of Straight Jacket, William Castle, and other well-known mystery melodramas of the past. FM32 also had articles on Lon Chaney Sr., The Hideous Sun Demon, and The Tomb of Lygia. The winners of a fan model-making contest were announced, with first prize appearing on the cover, a diorama of King Kong in New York. There was also an article about fan-made movie entitled The Terror from Tucson. A Horror of Dracula comic is also included. I want to dedicate this look at famous monsters to my dad, who passed away this week. He called me weird, but always encouraged my monster kingdom by buying me famous monsters and taking me to movies. One of my fondest memories was when we went together to the Acker Mansion, the museum home of Forrest J. Ackerman. I'm going to miss you, Pops. Normally, I just roll Ken's Famous Monsters of Film Land segment directly into the conversation about the film that we're talking about. But I just wanted to take a second and just give Kenny a thank you for, for doing what he does, uh, for sending in a segment when so much is obviously happening in his life. So, uh, you know, we got your back, man. Much love to you, Ken. All right. Let's get to the conversation with Tim Durbin about the movie Two on a Guillotine. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, Monster Kids, I've got the man behind the website Viewing the Classics, which you can find at viewingtheclassics.blogspot.com, on the line with me right now. Tim Durbin, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing just great, Derek. Great to hear you. It's good to have you back on the show. We had John once before to talk about the most dangerous game. That was a load of fun. The movie we're talking about this week, though, it's a little different because I never even heard of it until you brought it up. So oh, I'm really? Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to dive into it. But you know, there's something we do with every guest that comes on to Monster Kid Radio, even if they've been on the show before, even if they've played the game before. You know what it is. Uh, the Classic Five. We got to play a round of the Classic Five. And for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a game we play here on the show. I've got a deck of cards right here that I've been slowly mixing up while we've been chatting. It's uh, a game that we play that, that serves more as an icebreaker than anything else because there are no wrong answers. Each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. Tim, are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? I sure am. All right, here we go. Card number, oh, well, this is appropriate. Considering that you and I both recently took place in the Vincent Price tag. First card, what's your favorite Vincent Price film? I go a little off the beaten path than some other folks. Uh, my favorite Vincent Price movie is The Mad Magician. Now I present for the first time on any stage The Lady and the Buzzsaw.
your bag at the studio and took mine by mistake. Where is it? Oh, Don, I... What's the matter? What have you done with it? I left it in the cab. There's nothing to worry about, mister. I gave it to a cop. You gave it to a cop? What was in that bag, Don? It was a head. A human head. Don, Don, what's the matter with you? Don, keep away from me. Well, why don't you laugh now? You know, after watching the movie that we're talking about this week, there might be a theme here, which we'll get to. We'll get to. But no, The Mad Magician is great. The Vincent Price tag was something I did on YouTube, and I tagged a few other people, and then it kind of bounced around and, and made its way around to other people. So that was fun to see all the different responses. And I love The Mad Magician. It's a good one. It's a really good one. All right, card number two. This actually comes from the in-production deep cut deck. You feel like getting deep here, Tim? I'll go deep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is your preferred Mario Bava film, Black Sunday or Black Sabbath? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think I would have to go with Black Sunday just because it's such a gothic masterpiece. The sound you hear is dripping blood. This is the start of Black Sunday. I've seen them both, and and Black Sabbath has has a lot that's wonderful in it, especially Karloff's segment uh, with him playing the Wordalak. But Black Sunday in the in the black and white with Baba doing his tribute to the Universal Monster movies, and with the narrative and Barbara Steele and uh, such a great performance, two performances really, and just the wonderful photography. I I would. Uh, I would go with Black uh, Sunday, but Black Sabbath is wonderful as well. Black Sabbath is great, but Black Sunday's got Barbara Steele. <laughs> it's, it's hard to top Barbara Steele. I mean, she's great. I, mean, I love Karloff too, but for different reasons. <laughs> 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 wow. All right. Card number three from the Universal deck. If you could have been on set during the production of any classic Universal monster movie, which one would it have been? That's a fascinating one. Um I think I'd go with Son of Frankenstein just to see the personalities alone with Lugosi and Karloff and Atwell and, and Rathbone. That would be just uh, so fun and walking around on those sets, which look amazing on screen. That, that would be something. All right, card number four from the Monster Bash deck. Who was your favorite celebrity guest to meet at Monster Bash? I think I answered this uh, at Monster Bash. Oh, no, did you really? <laughs> yeah, I did. So I'm going to try and pick another one. Favorite celebrity guest? I'm going to go with Janita Faye. She was uh, just so warm and welcoming and a real pleasure to meet. And it was fun to just connect how she looks now to the little girl she played in in all those Hammer classics. Janita Faye was really sweet, really nice. Right on. Very cool. All right, final card. Tim, what's your favorite Ed Wood film? I would have to go with Bride of the Monster just because for what it is, it's a final showcase for Lugosi. It obviously has its uh, uh, share of critics, and you can criticize the film, but you can also enjoy it. And And I really love that 
would, in, in his own mind, put together something for Bela that was both a tribute and a homage, and, and I think it's wonderful. It's a solid film. It's probably the most, quote-unquote, real movie that he's done. And I've said this before, that it feels like it had the start of something that could have been grand. But, yeah, I hear you. It's not the last time Lugosi appeared on film, but, yeah, I, I can see that. He kind of wrote that character for Mad Scientist Bela, for sure. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Lobo, take the girl to my quarters. There's not a trace of it. Let me loose, do you hear me? You will be soon the speak of a giant. Or, like all the others, dead. Well, that was the Classic Five. How do you feel, Tim? Oh, I feel just great. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right, so we're going to talk about a movie today that, like I said, I had never even heard of before Tim brought it up. And when he brings up the title, Two on a Guillotine, I'm thinking, is this a giallo film? I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> what? Dean Jones is in this movie? What? No. Huh? What, what is this all about? So I go and I check it out, and... Wow, this was really fun. It's a wonderfully fun movie. Sometimes it gets a it gets criticized a bit because it's not an all out horror movie. There's a there's a lot more going on with a with a mystery and a romance and really nice character development. But it's a lot of fun and when you get near the end you've got just a terrific finale. I don't want to reveal too much about it because like you said, I don't think a lot of people know about this movie and it's uh, really wonderful to discover. When she awakens, she'll discover that her demons are very real. And they mean to destroy her. Whatever happens, she mustn't lose her head. Connie Stevens and Dean Jones, two young people in love. Full of fun and gaiety, the joy of living. But now she must return to the dark house. The gleaming blade has claimed one victim already. Soon there'll be two on a guillotine. So Two on a Guillotine came out in 1965. Dean Jones is the male lead. Connie Stevens is the female lead, and, and she's adorable in this film. She plays a double role, even, in this film. And while the two characters that she plays could not be more different. Oh, yes. Yes, she actually plays mother and daughter. And mm -hmm. we actually start out at the beginning of the movie where she's performing for her assistant to her magician husband, who's played by the great Cesar Romero. And you can tell that their marriage is... A little bit strained she's a little bit sick of all the traveling and and maybe of the grotesque um illusions that she has to take part in which include getting stabbed by a sword and then their latest illusion that they're going to debut in france is a guillotine which she is going to be placed into and 
hopefully she'll find some way to escape. So, like I said, I didn't know anything about this movie, and the title made me think Giallo, and I'm thinking, okay, what what is this movie about? And then the movie starts, and we see a pretty gruesome stabbing by sword, and it's a little bit more gruesome than I think I was expecting. Yes, indeed. So I'm thinking, this is not making me feel any better about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it does turn out to be a, a magic act. And, and I think when it comes to illusionist acts and that sort of thing, there is, and, and I don't know any names, but there is a, a tradition or uh, maybe a subgenre of, of doing magic on stage where it's really just doing horrible things to another person. And that's the end of the show. They, mm-hmm. The person who was killed on stage may or may not come out and battle the audience, but really you're just watching somebody get murdered. <laughs> Very grand guignol of it, you know? Yes. yes indeed. But it, it's all illusion. Yeah. And that's where we get started out. And then we uh, flash forward about 20 years. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about what's happened to these characters, except that the Cesar Romero character who is a magician by the name of the great Duquesne is getting his last rites, And we move to the funeral and this is where the real story begins. Yeah. The, the previous bit was all kind of set up and, and it's an important to know because it establishes the relationships and how close to the edge Duquesne is mentally. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very driven to perform, perform, perform. He's in love with his wife, but perform, perform, perform. The coffin, we see the coffin. We see the body lying in the coffin. There's a glass top to it. And he's left instructions with his press person to even chain the thing up mm-hmm. because he doesn't want to do anything the easy way. And this other thing that he doesn't want to do the easy way, he promised he'd come back. <laughs> come back from the grave. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and everyone's saying, oh, this is crazy. This is this is insane. Some bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> and very bad taste. And Connie Stevens p- pops up again. This time she's playing uh, Duquesne's daughter, Cassie. And she's come to the funeral after really being estranged from her dad for years. 20 years ago, something happened and she was farmed off to an aunt in Wisconsin. And now she's returning home to California. And the first thing she sees is them tying up the coffin in chains with locks, and she just gets really upset. (laughs) Which, understandable. I mean, she had a troubled relationship with her father to begin with. Now, we did see her, Cassie, as a a baby in the the prologue, I guess you would call it. Uh But it's quite shocking it's something that i think would i would find shocking if i came to a funeral even if it's for somebody that i hadn't seen in 20 years and they're chaining him up like what what? my brain would immediately go to not so pleasant places so i totally get it and connie does connie like i'm on first name basis with her connie stevens like i said she plays these two characters night and day she does such a good job and all you want to do is hold her and hug her until she stops crying. You know, you just want to make her feel better. She seems so helpless. And I'm sure that's kind of what drew Dean Jones's character to her. He plays Val Henderson, who's a reporter, but he doesn't really let on that he's a reporter. He's trying to get a story out of this whole thing. And, and she's already shot down a lot of reporters. So he's going to go in with a different angle. And, you know, he's a nice guy. And it's Dean Jones. I mean, of course yes. he's a nice guy. <laughs> of course. 
this movie came out the same year as his first movie for Disney, uh, that darn cat. And so you, you can see why Disney was so interested in him because he's just so charming and really a fun character. And he's so nice and so <laughs> personable. You can't help but, but like him even when he's lying to Cassie about who he really is. Well, he says he's uh, in real estate, and then later on you feel like maybe he's about to come clean, but no, I'm a brain surgeon. No, I do this. No, I do that. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and I do wonder sometimes when, you know, especially in the movies in the 60s from Disney, the live-action movies, I'm sure it paid well, but I can't help but wonder if they kind of got typecast a little bit. Mm. People like Dean Jones or Fred McMurray, mm. you know, people like that. If they got kind of stuck doing those kinds of nice guy roles, but darn it, Dean Jones was so good at it. Yes, and he's very good in this. It was really hard to uh, just accept that he's lying this whole time. <laughs> it's like, dude, what are you doing? You're a nice guy. Come on. Yeah, the the two leads have great chemistry together. They're just so cute together. So he he starts by by driving her home from the funeral, pr- pretending he's uh, someone else. Mm-hmm. And then his boss basically tells him to keep pretending he's someone else and try and get the story from her. This is where we, we eventually have the reading of the will, which we learn that the great Duquesne never did anything small. And, and they have the reading of the will at the Hollywood bowl, which is great. S and D we find out that Duquesne has left everything to Cassie providing that she stay in his house for a minimum of uh, seven days because he's planning to come back from the dead and appear to her there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If she doesn't meet the conditions, then the estate, which is worth something like $300,000 will be split among her former nursemaid and his uh, former manager. The manager is Buzz, Buzz Sheridan, played by Parley Bear, and Dolly is the uh, nursemaid, housemate, or housemaid person, and she's played by Virginia Gregg. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, This reading of the will scene also features an actor that I really like. (laughs) John Hoyt is here, and he was the original ship's doctor in the original Star Trek pilot. Yes, indeed. And this is, he's just cool, man. <laughs> Plus, he was in a, a lot of those uh, great sci-fi movies in the 50s, like Attack of the Puppet People and oh. the Time Travelers. Sure, sure. And he plays Cassie's lawyer, and he's uh, not too happy about having to perform in such a large venue. <laughs> <laughs> it is odd. <laughs> It's definitely odd, but it's a fun little scene too. And I'm thinking, okay, this is not a low budget affair. Somebody rented out the Hollywood bowl (laughs) to produce this. Uh, It was produced, excuse me. It was distributed by Warner brothers. So it probably had WB money Mm -hmm. behind it. Not surprising that, that a big studio was involved, especially considering the caliber of the cast. I think you're right. The scenes with Dean Jones and Connie Stevens are some of the absolute best. Now, he's trying to get into the home, and she rebuffs him quite a bit. There's a little bit of flirtation, maybe, but not quite. I apologize. There's a dog barking right outside (laughs) my window, which is odd because I'm on the second floor. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) there's a little bit of flirtation, but not quite, and she does turn him away when she goes inside the home. Something I noticed, she leaves the key in the front door, 
Not sure why, but it's it's noticeable because it's on a big fat key ring, <laughs> which I couldn't help but see. But then it turns out that's a good thing she left the key in the door because she gets spooked, screams, and Dean Jones, who can still hear it, he's still close enough to hear, comes running in to save the day to see what's going on. And well, granted, he does leave the key in the front door too, but at least he could get in. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> To see what's going on. And, and this is his end. He's able to establish a connection with her at this point. And the two of them go through what is turning into maybe a haunted house or old dark house story. There was pretty much a consensus that a lot of people thought that what Warner Brothers was trying to do here was make something akin to a William Castle movie with a bunch of shock scenes. Sure. Just a, a spooky haunted house movie that they could try to... Um, promote along along the way that the castle did and, and drive an audience is that way. The great thing is when she gets spooked, it's from a skeleton descending toward her on a wire that recalls the skeleton in, in the house on haunted Hill. So that, that was kind of a, a neat thing. They're borrowing maybe a little too much from castle, but it's fun. I did notice that. I was like, Oh, this feels very castle. And I quickly looked up the director to see if he had any connections to Castle. And William Conrad is the director here. And I don't see any real connections to William Castle here. So, you know, good on him, I guess, for doing it as well. I'm not sure. William Conrad, I know, is an actor because my mom used to watch Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> yeah, and he was canon before that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, before there was canon. Yeah. But I, I didn't realize that he uh, directed quite a bit, too. Actually, I think this was his first feature film. He had been in uh, oh. Warner Brothers television unit for a while. He he got his start in in radio and and was was famous for playing the role of Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. Later on, when the series moved to television, he wasn't considered because he was pretty heavy set. So he went into television behind the scenes, and then they pretty much handed him this project. I certainly think he did a. Uh, a great job. He he made several movies, but none of them were super successful. I think this one made a modest profit. So it was after his movie career behind the scenes, he pretty much went into television after that. Okay. Yeah, he directed a lot of television, but yeah, this was uh, one of, it looks like only three films, well, maybe three or four films that he did. as a, uh, He served as director. He also was the producer on the film. Yeah. So it makes me wonder how involved he was in everything in the, in the film itself. Because I feel like whoever wrote the scenes between Dean Jones and Connie Stevens, they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. The people behind the, the script for the film, Henry Sleazer, who was a very prolific writer. He, he wrote for a number of science fiction magazines and later moved on to become a uh, premier writer for Alfred Hitchcock on television. Okay, okay. He wrote something like 50 episodes of his TV series. The fascinating thing about him is he based this story on a science fiction story that he had written way back in 1958. Oh, wow. And the story is completely different because instead of a magician being the father, it was actually a scientist. And there's a giant ant in the <laughs> in the science fiction story that, <laughs> needless to say, doesn't make it into here. So, <laughs> Spoiler, no giant ants. Yeah. <laughs> and his, his uh, co-screenwriter is uh, John Newble, who is notable because he wrote some episodes of Thriller. He wrote the Bread and Circuses episode of Star Trek. And he also wrote The Screaming Skull. Yeah, that's what I was. If you didn't bring it up, I was going to <laughs> Screaming Skull, man. Love that movie. <laughs> I wonder if this movie was maybe made 10 years 
earlier if they would have gone with the mad scientist and giant ant route, you know, put it right in the 50s with that that sci-fi run amok thing. Well, that's solid. I, I don't know anything about these these writers, so awesome. This is one of the reasons why I like people to bring some of their favorite films mm-hmm. to the show, because you've got all this information and knowledge about this movie that I'm finding myself really enjoying for the first time. I, I get to watch it and, and kind of turn off a lot of the critical part of it because I'm just enjoying the movie. The movie's got a pretty quick pace. You know, once Val goes in and saves Cassie from the skeleton on a string, they snoop around and they're checking out the rest of the house. And because it was previously owned by a magician, you're finding a lot of things that you might find in a magician's home where he has uh, like masks and other magic effects and that sort of thing. There is one room that is locked off. They can't get into it. They do find a bunny, which turns up randomly in the movie. And every time it does, the music gets a little light. (laughs) Yeah, the bunny has its own theme music. Yeah, yeah. Everybody in the movie, nobody has theme music, but the bunny does. (laughs) (laughs) And they explain the bunny is... You know, he's probably just somebody that he used to pull out of a hat. I don't think they even give him a name. They don't show anybody ever taking care of the bunny. He just lives there. He just <laughs> you know, goes up and down the stairs when he needs to and does whatever. <laughs> yeah, the film was scored by the great Max Steiner. Oh, man, that music was amazing. Yeah, and this was his, I think, his second to last film. He was going blind. He actually had to have someone else uh, conduct the score. It's wonderful music. It's romantic when it needs to be romantic. It's eerie and uh, when it needs to needs to be. I think he even uses a theremin at some points to amp up the creep factor. It's really good work, and I think it speaks to the quality and the skill of Max Steiner. Because sometimes when you think about music and monster movies or scary genre films – you just go to the scary bits, you know, and, and certainly those are the iconic parts. I mean, I love Creature, and part of it's because of the da da da, you know, the stinger, <laughs> which is a big, intense piece. But it takes real skill to keep you engaged while the music is a little bit more subtle and communicating something other than an adrenaline rush. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So during the love scenes, during the scenes where they're at the carnival and they're kind of falling in love and the music's there, but it's not the big bombastic, I'm going to get you music. It's just a nice accompaniment that still communicates what it needs to without, I don't know if I'm making much sense again, but it's solid. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I don't know if it's ever been released uh, independently on disc. I know Max Steiner does have quite a bit of his music available out there, but it's certainly something that I'd listen to on a semi-regular basis because I loved it. I don't think the, the score has ever been released, unfortunately. I was looking for it on iTunes the other day so I could play the bunny theme again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the bunny has his own theme song. (laughs) And the movie even ends with it. So, I mean, it's it's more than once. It's there repeatedly. It's, It's kind of cool. Somehow or other, Val has won over Cassie and she he gets to stay over. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very clear that he's staying on the couch the first night or he's staying somewhere else. He's, they're not sleeping together yet. Although I do think it's pretty interesting the way they kind of indicate that this relationship has moved pretty quickly and has moved to a physical relationship pretty pretty much with the carnival scene being the culmination of a lot of it where she wins a prize for throwing uh, – was it – Balls and bottles, just knocking over bottles. Is that what the game yeah. was, the carnival yeah. game? Yeah, I think it was. She gets the stop and go pillow. For a woman who can't make up her mind, stop and go. It's like, okay. <laughs> and the next time we see the pillow, 
<laughs> Val and Dean are going at it on the couch. Boy, that sounds a lot worse than it really was. <laughs> they're they're kissing. They're being very intimate with one another. And we see the pillow and the go part of it is facing up. So, you know, <laughs> this could go somewhere, but they're interrupted. Yes. Yes. Dolly, who we haven't seen uh, since the reading of the will, is in the house somehow. And nobody understands how she got in there, but she's screaming because she claims that she saw Duquesne upstairs and they go and they search that room again and they can't open the room. And they, they asked Dolly if she knows where the key is. And she says, yes, it was buried with him. That's just a kind of a nice creepy moment. We've spent all this time with Connie and Dean enjoying their romance. And then all of a sudden we've got a mystery on our hands uh, what is in that room upstairs? Right. And up until this point, we're, we have seen some other creepy things happening. People breathing heavy into a telephone and other sound effects and that sort of thing. There are some creepy things happening here, but they're all explained. Mm-hmm. But then when Dolly shows up, things start to get pretty mysterious again. That is for certain. Because it said earlier in the reading of the will that if Cassie is unable to stay in the home for seven nights that the money will then go to uh, Dolly and Buzz. Val jumps to the conclusion, and, and rightly so. I mean, in any story, I think you would jump to the conclusion that people are trying to scare Cassie away to take the money for themselves. So there's an investigation there. They kick Dolly out. Even though Cassie doesn't want to at first, Val's very convincing. They kick her out. He goes and tracks down Buzz at the local bar, talks to him. Everybody denies being involved in any of this, of course. It's interesting because suddenly... We've got this mystery and suddenly we're suspecting Dolly and we're suspecting Buzz. And even though we haven't been able to get into the room upstairs, we've seen a light under the door turn out when the rabbit was going into the door. (laughs) It's hard to be creeped out by a locked door with a light underneath the locked door being turned off when the bunny's theme music is playing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what part of what, Makes this a fun movie because right. we're having mystery. We're having a little comic relief here. We're getting into some horror territory, too. You know, I really found myself enjoying the burgeoning relationship between Val and Cassie. So when his cover's blown and he doesn't get a chance to be the one to tell her the truth. Right. And now we're getting close to maybe spoiler territory here. And maybe I kind of want to pull back a little bit because I don't know if this movie is as well known as some of the others we talk about. I was really kind of heartbroken. It was like, okay. come on. Yeah. You had so many opportunities to come clean and dude. <laughs> I mean, he blew it, but we just can't help but feel bad for him because he's such a nice guy. <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, granted, he, he did her wrong, but uh-huh. uh, it was f- from the most purest of places, I feel. Well, maybe not, but it ended up in one of the most purest of places. He was falling in love with her, and that does become part of the resolution of the film as well. Even though the movie does have horror elements, and even though it did open with that gruesome sword and the gut magic trick... <laughs> Right. The movie doesn't get graphic. Yeah, there's a guillotine, and, and guillotines do what guillotines do. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty scary and, and shocking, and Dean Jones sells that really well. Mm-hmm. But it's not off-putting, you know? I mean, it's it's a scary movie in a haunted house, but it's light. We've got the bunny, you know, <laughs> to kind of offset it. It's, it's a nice mix, a nice balance between scary and just kind of fun. And the thing is that um – um 
Warner's was really pushing this as a shocking horror movie. And I think a lot of people were surprised after they, they went to see it. I did find a copy of the press book for the movie online. Oh, yeah? And they have these suggestions for theaters to promote the film. Oh, I'd love to hear this. Have nurses in attendance at all performances. Have coffee served to calm your nerves. (laughs) First aid equipment available for persons suffering shock. Free candles for those afraid to go home in the dark. Free hair dye for those whose hair turn white. (laughs) They also suggest hiring a tough bodyguard for those too frightened to go home alone. Have a free faint check for those who pass out during the show. Free smelling salts in the lobby. Fright insurance available for all. And free cough drops if you scream too much. They're really playing up the William Castle here, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, Yep, they certainly are. I love that old Ballyhoo and the old press books and all that. That's amazing. I don't think the movie warrants half of that, but how much fun (laughs) would that have been? I wouldn't have been upset if I went to a movie and had that lead up and then went to this. It wouldn't have bothered me at all, but yeah, it doesn't really seem like a good match for for most people. (laughs) (laughs) Some more background on the movie that I was able to uh, uh, pick up on. I talked to our friend uh, Troy Howarth. Oh, good. Okay. Who's a a very uh, interesting film historian. He said that the sets were already standing on the Warner lot. They were used for My Fair Lady. So that really did something to amp up the production values of the film because they've got these wonderful sets that look like they're from another time, which I presume were mostly uh, used for the interiors of the uh, Duquesne house. They just look great. It's a, it's a great looking film. It's, it's very crisp. The photography was done by an Oscar uh, winning cinematographer, Sam Leavitt. He won an Oscar for the defiant ones. Oh, okay. We talked about Henry Sleazar. He wrote a a heck of a lot of stories, but not a lot of his work was adapted to films. Uh, The only other film I know of that's based on a Sleazer story is um, the rather notorious Terror from the Year 5000. Nice. There are a couple of cameos in the film. William Conrad himself appears in the amusement park scenes Mm -hmm. where they're looking at the mirrors that warp your bodies. His mirror makes him look a little bit thinner, so he's got a smile on his face. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, in the opening funeral scene, it's not something I noticed the first couple of times I watched the film, but (laughs) it certainly stands out when you know he's there and you're looking for him. But Richard Keel is there. What? (laughs) Yes, and he he is huge because Connie Stevens walks right by him and he's just towering over her. He has a, a very brief role as a photographer at the funeral. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it to find that now because I didn't see it at all. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. And he, of course, played Iga. Uh-huh. As well as uh, Jaws and the James Bond movies. So You just gave me an excuse to play the Iga trailer in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to uh, help you out there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I hate to just go to the IMDb trivia page and say, this is what I know about the movie. But with a movie like this, I didn't know much about. And I did see on the trivia page, there's talk about a comic book that was published. Yeah, I've seen some pages of that online. It was uh, put out by uh, Dell Comics. Wow. Depiction of all the characters is really well done. The drawing, it looks like just like them in the movie. How have I not heard of this film before? It sounds like it'd be right up my alley. It's really a lot of fun, and especially when you get towards the end, it's just a thrilling climax, and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Right. The other thing I can mention is 
that William Conrad, with his background in radio, when he um, was casting the film, he picked a lot of people he had worked with in radio who have gone on to make some famous voices in, in movies and TV since then. Virginia Gregg, who played Dolly, was the voice of Mrs. Bates in the original Psycho, as well as the first two sequels. Wow. Harley Bear, who played Buzz Sheridan, he also appeared in episodes of The Addams Family and, and The Outer Limits. And in later years, he was the voice of Ernie Keebler in the cookie commercials. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. And we all know that Cesar Romero went on to play the Joker. And not too long after this, I mean... This yeah. is 65. Really, the next year. Yeah, and really, I'm looking at the guy, and I'm thinking, that doesn't look like the Joker to me. And and I don't know if that's just because I'm so used to seeing Cesar Romero with the makeup on his face that I'm having a hard time recognizing him without it, or what, but he doesn't move like the Joker. He doesn't sound like the Joker from the Batman 66. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, pretty good. I mean, he's just a good, solid actor in this. Uh, and I'm glad you brought him up because I, I wanted to comment on that. I also want to comment on a character that's only in one scene, the bar uh, that they find Buzz at. It's a bar called Big Mike's. And Big Mike is working behind the counter, and Big Mike is played by Billy Curtis, who is – and I, I'm sorry. I apologize, listeners. I don't know what the correct term is these days. He's mm -hmm. a little person. Mm -hmm. He's billed as midget in a lot of films, including Man of a Thousand Faces, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, he was in Gog. He was in Gorilla at Large. He did a lot of films that – I love. He appeared in a couple of episodes of the original Batman as well. So mm -hmm. uh, of 66 Batman. He's just fun to watch. <laughs> and, and the way he's like, I'm big Mike. And he steps down off the, the whatever he's standing on behind the counter and comes around. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's good. I like him. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention was that um, Connie Stevens, this is really the only genre movie she ever did outside of a sci-fi movie with Jerry Lewis, she made a little bit later. What? 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 She made a sci-fi movie, um, way, way out with Jerry Lewis. Oh, okay, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. You said Jerry Lewis sci-fi. My brain's like, what? 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 Okay, <laughs> but okay, gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she has a great scream, and really, if she had made more horror movies, I think she would have been uh, remembered as a scream queen. She really does a great job, and she's great throughout the movie. So first of all, I've not seen Way, Way Out, but just reading the synopsis of it on the internet, on the IMDb, makes me want to see Way, Way Out pretty badly. No, Connie Stevens does a really solid job, and it does make me wish that she had done more genre work. And I feel like that's one of the great things and maybe one of the sad things about genre films to begin with is that genre films seem to be more willing, or maybe they have to because of budget, to bring in people who aren't necessarily as experienced or as entrenched in other non-genre work. Mm -hmm. But as soon as these performers start getting more and more under their belt, they're able to, they're able to get away from the genre. And it kind of bums me out, you know I mean? Because I, I, I would like to have more of these solid performers doing more genre work. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about Connie Stevens and what she went on to do. I mean, and, and continues to do. I mean, she's still active. Oh, yes. To this day. And great. But man, if she had made more genre films, that would have been amazing. And she really has amazing family connections because she married Eddie Fisher. And um, so for at least a, a time while they were married, she was a stepmother to Carrie Fisher. So. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Fisher, I think it was her son. And uh, yeah, so just all those connections right there. 
Mm-hmm. And she's really good in this. She really is. Yeah, she screams a lot. There's a little bit of helplessness. She doesn't have as much agency as, say, some of the other female yeah. characters that I'm drawn to. But she holds her own romantically against Dean Jones, and I think that's where her strength is. We see so much of her character, and we really get in. Conrad takes us in through close-ups and just little scenes throughout the film where we get to know her, and we end up loving her because yeah. because of her personality. Her reasons for doing what she's doing and you know the regrets that she has, I mean, they're, they're all solid and real, and it really makes you feel for her. There is one sequence in here that, did make me a little uncomfortable. And I don't know if it's the director. I don't know if it was a cinematography choice or editing choice or what. But before the big kiss, there's a lot of back and forth between the two of them, the shots. You know, first we got Dean, then Ron Connie, then Dean, then Connie, then Dean's leaning in. It goes on a little too long. Yeah, I think so. And, and neither one of them look like they're in the mood. It's it's a little creepy. <laughs> I don't blame you. I've I've heard some other reviews mention that as well. It, it is a little, it is a little <laughs> creepy. Less would definitely be more in that. But that said, it, it's not enough to detract from the film. Like I said, I had a lot of fun watching this, and it looks like it is available on DVD. You can pick it up over on Amazon for what twenty bucks or so. And it's on a lot of streaming services too. So yeah, including Amazon. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for people who can pick it up. It's part of the Warner Brothers Remastered Edition collection, which means absolutely no. extra features but you know if they remastered it a little bit and made it look good one of the things that i love about the film too you were talking about the press books Uh i was looking at movie posters because you know how i like to make the movie posters say the name of the podcast Mm -hmm. and i love the the taglines are putting on the posters we don't mind sticking our necks out but the motion picture screen will beheading for a new high and sheer shock and total terror is on one of the movie posters. And then whatever they used for the DVD cover from Warner Brothers, wouldn't you like to learn how to flip your lid? If you're chopping for entertainment, here's the super shocker of them all. Who wrote this stuff? Because I want that job. (laughs) I absolutely love it. (laughs) I want to see that press book too. And while I was looking for the movie posters, I did see the cover of the Dell comic. And wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it is very cool. That'd be a nice collector's item to have. Yeah. I'd like to read it, but even the cover art is stellar. I don't know who did it. The cover, I don't think has the name of the artist on it. It does have Cesar Romero and Connie Stevens name on it to indicate which characters are there. But yeah, interesting. I wonder, does this mean then, does this make this comic book the first time the Cesar Romero likeness appeared in a comic predating anything he did as the Joker for Batman 66 and any tie-ins they did there. It's possible. There's an obscure trivia question for you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So cool. It is a really cool movie and I'm glad that I could introduce you to it. One of the fun things about this show is, is finding movies that I have yet to see because I've seen a lot of them, but I've not seen all of them. So to get into some of this stuff with people who love them, I mean, this was a blast. And like I said earlier, when we were talking about the mad magician, do you have a thing for movies with magicians? Is that a thing for you, Tim? Is, are, are you a magician on the side? Like, what, what's the connection there? I grew up a definite magic fan. So yeah. Something I, I've done. And when I take trips, I'm usually looking to see if there's any magicians performing in the, anywhere. I just really in, enjoy that pulling one over on the audience and trying to figure out how they did it and, and just being tased. I like movies that can bring 
that kind of a background and setting. And I, I think it just makes it fun. There was no judgment there when I was asking this because I too love magic. Uh, I, I came so close to joining like the Young Magicians Guild or whatever it was when I was a kid. You know, I grew up watching that stuff, loving that stuff. Still do when I can watch it. I've only seen one thing live. It was David Copperfield when I was much younger. But, you know, if that's something that you dabble in, I know what we're going to be doing between sessions at Monster Bash now. <laughs> I'll bring my Classic 5, but I'm going to bring a deck of cards for you to do some card tricks, man. <laughs> well, I'll have to see. <laughs> I only know a couple. <laughs> I can remember one. I can do one. <laughs> and it's not even that good. <laughs> The magic tricks in this that we see, like I said, are the sword in the gut, and then there's the guillotine doing what guillotines do, and I was nervous through the entire guillotine scene at the end. I was so nervous for Connie Stevens. Yes, me too. And I and I know that might have just spoiled something, but I mean, come on, and she's the female in this movie, you know what's going to happen to her. And I was so nervous. And I keep thinking, too, uh, when they tried to put somebody in a guillotine in House of Wax, and mm-hmm. that person insisted that was it house of wax or was it mad magician either way they insisted that the director get in it first to show that it's safe oh yes man that's that's scary (laughs) (laughs) i don't see where the safety latch is on this one so (laughs) (laughs) overall great film and again thanks tim for bringing it to my attention have you talked about it on your website over viewing the classics before yeah, you just need to go to the film index and search through the movies. They're all listed alphabetically, so yeah, there you go. It should be easy to find. There you go. So viewingtheclassics.blogspot.com. How often do you put stuff out over there? Uh, usually every couple of days. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I like to watch movies at home. <laughs> I love it, uh, especially since we're friends on Facebook. If you follow Tim on Facebook, you'll see what movie he's watching. And then couple hours later, usually on that post in that thread, he'll post, and here's my thoughts on it. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty quick. And they're short, like little bullet reviews. But I think because you're keeping them so concise and tight and efficient, you're able to get so much more in there. I sometimes have uh, problems sitting down and writing a, a lengthy review. So I thought, why don't I, I do and that way I won't spoil the movie for, for anybody. I'll just uh, kind of introduce what I enjoyed about it and um, – give them a clue as to what the plot is, and then you can read about it and then discover the movie on your own. And I want to bring attention to the classics on the tube site that you do as well. It doesn't Mm -hmm. look like it's updated as much, but it's vintage television basically. And even though listeners aren't going to hear this episode until sometime in November, we're recording in mid-October. And as of yesterday, you just posted a review of something that I haven't seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. And that was the episode of Suspense, a cask of Amatiato with Bela Lugosi. I've seen that before. I love it, but I hadn't thought about it in so long. So when you posted about it on Facebook, it's like, man, I got to go back and watch that. And it holds up, man. It holds up so good. It's an amazing piece. And we don't know much about Lugosi's career on television. He, he probably didn't do a whole lot. And this is back in the really early days of TV and and we have it preserved and it's wonderful to see him. And I wonder if that's probably the biggest problem is that so much of it did not get preserved mm-hmm. that we just don't have it and don't know about it. No, And that's got Ray Walston in it too, which is really yes. weird to see my favorite Martian and Dracula on the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Well, Tim, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, this was a, a great chat. I had a lot of fun with it. Listeners, I highly recommend the film. Go check it out. I'll make sure there's links to viewing the classics and classics on the tube uh, in the show notes here. 
and I'm sure we'll chat more before next Monster Bash. Well, thank you so much, Derek. I had a great time. Get yourself over to Viewing the Classics at viewingtheclassics.blogspot.com to check out what Tim's up to. He posts these like mini capsule reviews of classic cinema. They're not always horror movies. Sometimes it's a non-genre flick, but more often than not, it is something in the genre, which means it's got something for every monster kid out there. Go check it out. He also covers vintage television at his website, Classics on the Tube, which you can find at classicsonthetube.blogspot.com. Go check out both of these sites. Drop him a line and let him know that you heard him here on Monster Kid Radio. Tim will be at Monster Bash later this year. And if you want to meet him, well, you know where you got to be. Thanks again, Tim, for doing the show. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. Therefore, its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing the screaming skull. Be sure to bring someone with you who can identify you when you see the screaming skull. Only this lost soul, half man, half ghost, knows the secret of the living dead's curse. The torturous agony that saturates these walls and makes the shutters creak with almost human pain. Terrorizing those who dare to love with the maddening, jealous shriek of the screaming skull. What diabolic demon dares touch the screaming skull? What ghoulish thoughts control this poor man's demented mind? What does he know? What secret, horrifying and blood-curdling, is he hiding? Nothing is more terrifying than the spine-chilling breath of a vampire woman. Ghostly, ghastly, as unreal as a will-o'-the-wisp, as real as the skull. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. It all began in 1989, when America and Russia sent men and women to live on the moon. And look at who we sent. Strong, staunch, clever, daring, handsome, resourceful Jerry Lewis. 
Can Jerry do it alone? Of course not. He needs a girl. And Connie Stevens is the way, way out beauty the computer picked to be Jerry's partner and bride. I resent being asked to go up there for the sole purpose of his masculine needs. But that's not true. You're being sent up there as part of a scientific team. Scientific team? Ha! The only reason I'm being asked to go up there is because I happen to be built a little differently than Mr. Mattermore. It works better that way. How do you know you wouldn't like me if you got to know me a little better? And when you get to know him a little better, you'll find that Jerry has love and laugh troubles wherever he goes. Whether he's getting blasted off by a double-crossed dame... Why, you miserable, no-good, date-breaking, two-timing... ...or blasting on to his way-way-out honeymoon love nest on the moon. Where it stays dark 14 nights long. After all, this is only the first night. I still have 364 more to go. Go ahead, Peter. Take me. I'm yours. And look at who the Russians sent. Anita Ekberg as the lunar love bug who'll have you blushing when she makes it a honeymoon for three. It's bad enough during the 14 days of daylight, but now at the beginning of 14 days of night. And Dick Sean as the Red Dreadnought, who loves to dance, loves to party, loves to love. I come to give you love, romance, and laughter. And then there's Robert Morley, Jerry's peeping Tom boss. Who was that? Who was what? That Bob naked Perry is Mrs. Mattimore. What have you done with her? Complicating matters further are Dennis Weaver and Howard Morris as Hoffman and Schmidlap, the love-starved astronauts stuck on the moon for a year without women. Yeah, it's the wild space comedy that's so far out, it's in. Well, it's idiots like you that get us into trouble jumping into conclusions. Well, sir, no one called me and... Take a trip, girl, so slip into something slinky and smooth. Way, way out. Wave the world goodbye, let's fly, cause girl, I got a whole lot to prove. Way, way out. I mean to show you, I know you and me were meant to go the whole route. It's way, way out. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for being part of the ride this week. Big thanks to Ken and Jeff for contributing to the show, of course. Now, I've got a ton of feedback building up here, and we're going to get to that. The thing is, is I kind of lost control of it. If I could peel back the monster curtain a little bit, I've kind of lost control of my email, meaning things just started piling up. In this job search that I've been doing and trying to find gigs here and there, Somehow or other, I managed to mix up my Monster Kid Radio email address with my quote-unquote professional email address that I have on my resume and everything else, and a whole bunch of spam ended up in my Monster Kid Radio email box, so I've got to go through and sort all of that out. I do know that I've got a bunch of email and feedback and even some questions from you guys and gals, and we're going to get to that as soon as I get a handle on the email, and when that happens, of course, my wife will be coming back. Brenda will join us for the feedback because, I mean... I love doing it with her and I know she loves doing 
the show is that's the best part that's the favorite part of the show for her you know anyway that'll be coming if you want to be part of that well eventual feedback conversation you can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail by calling our 503-479-5657 phone number that's 503-4795-MKR of course you can find this on our website over at monsterkidradio.net where you've got our contact information links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group and our Twitter, and our Patreon, which I need to get to as well, which, again, is something that's going to be happening in the very near future. But if you want to contribute to the show and support the show that way, of course, we've got the Patreon campaign for you to do that. We've got links to everything that we've talked about here in the show, including Tim's two websites. So go check that out at monsterkidradio.net as well. And you're going to see embedded in the show notes for this week's episode the trailer for the movie, that we're going to be talking about in next week's episode. Sounds like this. In the ancient land of the pharaohs, beyond the valley of the doom, 13 sacred relics were taken from this tomb. Now, 17 will die in Rage of the Mummy. He is the Mummy Prince. And for these thieves, their luck is about to run out. Rabbit's foot? Really? And their accomplices, the Pharaohs of Darkness. Can I have everyone's attention, please? They will have learned too late. Of the legendary curse of Prince Horuskin's tomb. He will rise and bring deadly vengeance on them. No matter how far he must travel, he will find them. A master of disguises, the Mummy Prince can change his appearance at will. Nothing can stop him. And for Detectives Blake and Crawford, the body count is piling up. Blake, yeah. come take a look at this. There's nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. He will find you. And when he does... Heads will roll. Rage of the Mummy. Coming soon. <laughs> okay. We're not just talking about the movie Rage of the Mummy, which was a brand new release, came out at the end of last year. We're going to be talking with the film's creator, director, Dennis Vincent. Now, Dennis was on the show way back in the day when he had another movie in production that spoke to the monster kid and me. And we're going to talk about what happened to that film, what he's been up to, what he does, and specifically as a low-budget filmmaker, how he made Rage of the Mummy happen. That's going to be happening next week on the show, so come back for that. You know, if you are a YouTube user, Monster Kid Radio's YouTube channel just had a release over this past weekend where I looked ahead at what's going on for myself and Monster Monster Kid Radio in 2019. It's a short 15 minute long video. If you are a YouTube user, please consider looking up Monster Kid Radio and checking that out just to kind of get up to speed and see where my head's at when it comes to the podcast so that you know what to expect in general terms this year. 
I've got a lot of stuff in the works. I talked about it on the YouTube page, in the YouTube video that I posted. I've talked about it online a little bit on Facebook. And a lot of it's just up here in the old monster kid noggin. And uh, I'm really excited. I know this is the end of January. And by now, most people have said, ah, New Year's resolution. Okay, uh, nice try, buddy. But you know what? I still feel pretty positive about things. I'm really excited about where things are going with Monster Kid Radio, with Monster Kid Writer, with Comicstalgia, with the Plan 9x9 podcast, with 1951 Down Place, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm just stoked. And I'm really glad that you guys and gals are here because, you know, if there's stuff to be excited about in the Monster Kid world, I want to share it with you. So... Anyway, I guess that's just my way of saying thank you for sticking with us through the first month of 2019. I'm going to go ahead and sign off by letting you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Frankenstein's Mug. That song belongs to the band The Greasy Gills. It's off their new album, Bodega Boys. Go check it out. It's five bucks for eight songs. They're all great. You can find them at thegreasygills.bandcamp.com. Check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook, and I will talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 